A couple years ago, the National Review had an article titled, Cowardly Men Love Abortion. Now, before I get into this and read this, I need to say something. Because the statistics tell us that you cannot have a crowd like this and not have women who've had abortions. And so what I want to say is we're all very familiar with the consequences of such a thing. But I also want to extend grace and know that there is a healing and there is a forgiveness. Um, and so I'm not actually pinpointing your act, but I'm talking about the men in this situation. So if you would, just hold your judgment until we're through with this, okay? Um, so the article mentions Kyvin Schroff, who published an article, refers to his article, that was entitled, Men Like Me Benefit from Safe Abortion Access. And so I'm going to read portions of this. By men like me, Shroff clearly means successful men, men who are too busy to care about any aspect of their sexual activity other than enjoyment, let alone take responsibility for it. Thanks to abortion, neither the needs and desires of the women involved nor the life of the child who might come into being must enter his calculation. According to his lengthy bio, Schroff is very important. At the time of the article, he was a senior advisor uh, to a DC nonprofit, a former staffer for Hillary Clinton's campaign digital team. Not to mention, he has an MBA from Yale, BA from Brown, and he was about to graduate from law school when this was written. He certainly didn't need a child to complicate his success. Schroff tells us, in many ways, it feels like my life is about to begin. It would be a terrible thing to have a baby. He wants to have kids someday, but he's not in a relationship, and after suffering through the pandemic, he's ready to, in his words, eke out and enjoy every last minute of my 20s. So while he's busy sowing his wild oats, any children he happens to father will just have to meet their untimely end at least until the time is right for him. One legal scholar writes, while pregnant, a woman is carrying a new and vulnerable human being within her. Unlike a biological father, a pregnant woman cannot just walk away. A pregnant woman must engage in a life-destroying act. Abortion, in other words, facilitates the sexual desires of cowardly, irresponsible men to abandon their unborn child and their child's mother while encouraging women to free themselves from the tyranny of their biology by committing an act of violence against their unborn child, end quote. Trough is an example of irresponsibility, especially when it comes to sexual activity. And to compound the issue, Schroff encourages killing a human life to allow his sexual prowess to go unabated. Now, Schroff may not perfectly align with the false teachers that Peter is addressing, but his view is parallel to the progressive voices within churches who tout Christianity while they embrace all kinds of sexual activity outside a married man and woman. 
And of course, false teachers are going to throw in denial of the gospel as well. If there is one theme that Peter makes clear in this last section of chapter 2, it's that false teachers are grossly irresponsible. But they're going to be held responsible in their actions by God. They do not have an excuse that eliminates them from culpability in denying the gospel, spreading a fake spirituality, and propagating a sensuous lifestyle. And they're causing havoc amongst the people of God. Peter makes clear they are going to reap the consequences for their actions. Now, when we read a passage like this, it's not unusual to have many Christians feel like that this is out of place in the Bible because they think it causes God to come off way too harsh. But when God intervenes in the world, we just can't lop off the sections of God that we don't like in order to accept the parts that I do like, you know, that he's loving and we all hold hands and sing Kumbaya together. God is a just and holy God just as much as he is a loving and forgiving God. His justice and holiness demands that he deal with iniquity in the world. Now, that doesn't nullify his grace. In fact, grace makes no sense unless God is also holy and just. God's holiness and justice creates the context for him to deal with sin adequately, and then it gives grace meaning. We looked at the first part of this verse the last time we were in 2 Peter, and so we start with the second part, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Bold and willful identifies the general approach of these false teachers. They are inappropriately forward about their sin, and they have little or no restraint in that pursuit. When it says bold and willful, it also has the connotation they have no interest in a dialogue, at least a reasoned dialogue. They just love to shout louder, trying to silence their critics. They assume they're right, and you're always wrong. It reminds me of what happens when some college campuses host a speaker that doesn't fit within the mob mentality, and they're booed or shouted over as they speak. Protesters utilize what's called a heckler vote to silence opposition. Many choose to not hear an opposing view. Free speech and tolerance are a name only in those cases. Now, when Peter speaks of the glorious ones, he's referring to angels. Being created by God, the angels were glorious beings. And you might remember the story of the angels, some angels who had come in the Old Testament and had relations with women and created what were called the Nephilim, all right? 
Um, and so there were these bad angels, and that's kind of woven throughout this. But these false teachers were having an over-inflated view of themselves, so audacious that they were casting judgments against God's angels, and by implication, God himself. And this is really crossing a line that few dare to cross, and Jude talks about this when he says, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So Michael did not even declare judgment against Satan on his own authority. And so Peter's kind of arguing along the same lines that good angels do not venture to pronounce judgment over evil angels. Therefore, the false teachers should not overstep their authority in announcing judgment on the angels. Now, Peter explains why this uh, is important in verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So what was likely happening is that the false teachers were being accused of serving Satan in their evil doing. And so to counter these charges, they would attempt to demonstrate their independence from Satan by pronouncing judgment against him and the demons. And Peter is saying, your ruse is up. Good angels don't even declare God's judgment against evil angels. They leave that to the Lord. There's really instruction there for us, isn't it? You know, I think there are some Christians that feel that it is their responsibility to name people and the judgment that's due to them not leaving it in God's courts. And James gives us some instruction about that, that uh, you, know, you need to be patient because the vindication is the Lord's. You just say, I'll, I'll let the Lord take care of that any way he wants. You know, my, my word is not final. This is especially good for people that, you know, we want the judgment of God to hit them. We say that on those that we perceive as our enemies. We don't mind the judgment of God then, but then when it gets close to home, it's like, oh, you know, I don't believe in God's judgment, right? But the, the, the point here is that it's not in our court to dictate the judgment. That's God's job. Uh, so we're to leave it to the Lord. The angels, though great in strength and power, know better than to intrude into a sphere that is not their own. And the angels remember the rebellion of Lucifer, and know how serious it is to revolt against God's authority. Verse 12, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destructions. The irony is that the false teachers were claiming a higher knowledge, and they passed themselves off as if they have a spirituality exceeding the normal person. Now, I'm not saying people who do this are all false teachers, but we see that done with a lot of churches. They think they're more spiritual because they have this gift or they have this manifestation or whatever, and you're just missing out. 
So the false teachers did this as well, along with other things that, you know, made the moniker of false teaching deserving for them. Um, but with the laser focus of God's spirit, Peter pins the description that they are in fact acting like an animal instead of a sentient human being with a conscience. They're motivated by their natural drives, particularly their sexuality. They are not acting like rational beings. They are acting like uncontrolled dogs whose one goal is to satisfy their appetites. People can act like a dog no matter how many degrees they have after their name. Right? Because they often will propagate this kind of thing. To even say they go with their gut defames gastrointestinal systems. They do a lot more than that. Their instinct is sexual pleasure and arrogance. They have no parameters, no fence, no boundaries in pleasing their appetites. They are like brute beasts. I read a story recently of a dog that ate seven golf balls. And the owner said, chocolate Labradors are incredibly greedy dogs, and Wilson is no different. They will eat anything they think is food. Wow, don't worry. The dog had a golf ballectomy, and he survived, all right? So false teachers devour whatever they want for their pleasure. And we talk with such people, you realize they have no interest in reasoning or admitting any kind of wrong. The only way to stop them is to not catch and release, but for their life to end. Now, that's not our responsibility. That's God's responsibility. But clearly, the passage is saying they cannot stop themselves. They have no interest in submitting to anything or anyone. They're like a rabid dog cornered by a dog catcher with the catch-all poles. That's the long stick with the noose. They have to be forcibly caught and stopped. They talk like they are exhibiting wisdom, but they're ignorant of God's spiritual authority. We already know that they proclaim judgment against angels, but they also blaspheme, meaning they defile and slander that which is holy. They're far outside their expertise and capacity to speak about spiritual matters. But that doesn't stop them from trying to influence naive believers. Destroyed in their destruction, the passage says. In other words, while they are destroying lives with their false teaching, they're causing their own demise. They'll face God's judgment. They're not going to escape the consequences. So God's got that. Blasphemy is now a museum piece. The Gallery of Modern Art in Glasgow, Scotland, 
hosted a series of exhibitions called Made in God's Image, organized by a company called Culture and Sport Glasgow. The exhibit includes a simple open Bible next to the Bible, a container of pens, and a notice which reads, if you feel you've been excluded from the Bible, please write your way back into it. So there are a number of things disconcerting about this invitation. Chiefly, it makes us the subject in the Bible an object that we can bend for our whim and agenda. But what's worth noting is the venomous response of people who have visited the exhibit. Visitors have responded to the invitation by uh, discrediting the Bible's pages with a litany of angry and, and lewd comments. One person wrote, this is all sexist pish. That's a word that expresses deep disdain. So disregard it all. Another wrote on the first page of Genesis, I am bi, female, and proud, and I want no God who's disappointed in this. Others have taken the opportunity to alter verses, including Genesis 1-1, to prove that everything about the Bible and God is man-made. Andrea Williams, director of the Christian Legal Center, said, we have got to a point where we call the desecration of the Bible modern art. The Bible stands for everything this art does not, for creation, beauty, hope, and regeneration. End quote. Now listen, we can't just shake our heads at something like this. Because we know that these attitudes are in our backyard and they are crouching at the front door of churches and in some cases within the churches. And we may not be able to control blasphemy within the public square, but certainly we can choose whether to allow it within the church by adopting views that run directly counter to the clear proclamation of God's word. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. The payback for the wrongdoing is certain. There'll be no escaping the consequences of their evil doing. Now listen, lest we grow arrogant in this point, pointing our fingers, we have to remember that left to our natural selves, we're all deserving of judgment, right? Because we've all sinned, including me. I am deserving of judgment in and of myself. But God has extended grace to us and forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And I will add that these people that I speak of are not an enemy. They are victims of an enemy. They're still people that deserve to be respected as a human being who do evil things. Okay? But the destruction that the false teachers will experience, that's going to be their reward. The pastor says, you know, when parting takes place and people participate in sexually explicit activity, usually that's at nighttime. But the point here is that the false teachers... They do this out in the open. They don't even try to hide their sin. 
They don't use subterfuge or darkness. They're right out in the open. And when you look at our culture and what is paraded in the streets, the right to mutilate children for a sex change, to deny biological reality, and then to try to silence anyone who disagrees with them as bigoted and ignorant, that is the very idea of evil being perpetrated. You know, if you look back on the Old Testament of the idols that were sacrificing babies and children, that's what our culture is doing. We're sacrificing our children on the altar of this sex fiend idea. And there's no shame. Ecclesiastes says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. You, know, you do that in the evening. But no, they do it in the morning. What are those who rise early in the morning when they may run after strong drink who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them? They get drunk in the morning. You do that at night. That's what these false teachers are like. No shame whatsoever. Instead of bringing blessing to a fellowship, there were spots and blemishes that defiled the assembly. It reminds me of when Peter had this discussion about marriage in Ephesians, and he was applying it to the church, and he said that so that, um, speaking of, the, uh, of, the, of Christ in the church, so he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. So the church is not to have these ugly stains or blemishes. And that doesn't mean there's not sin in our lives. Of course there is. We've all sinned, but there's not the... There's not the continual, habitual thing that goes unattended. Disgraceful actions being associated with the church because the church is not addressing it. I mean, when you buy a piece of furniture, you buy some clothing, you're not going to buy it with a a stain on it or, or a rip. Yet the church that allows false teaching and does not address the immoral actions of its participants are allowing such stains to continue. Now what most commentators think is taking place is that the problem is similar to that that was taking place with the Corinthians. And you might remember that they were using the communion um, as a way to propagate their sexual proclivity and parting. So the feasting here refers to the Lord's table. So they were deceiving the body of Christ by participating in the communion to get inside the church in order to influence them with their false teaching. Verse 14, they have eyes of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So they are a kind of people that cannot differentiate between a healthy relationship with the opposite sex and a lustful one. The hearts are completely given over to sin. And they care not to address the problem because they don't think they have a problem. You know, I have a right to this. I have the desire. 
I have the, the passion. I fuse my identity to that. That's just who I am. I have to have this. I have the right to indulge the flesh. The satisfying of their lusts is the false teacher's main ambition. They cannot cease from sin. Insatiable is a, is a Greek word that means uninterrupted in time and length. They never stop pursuing their sin. These are the kind of people that consider themselves to be free, yet they're in the most terrible kind of bondage, of slavery. Whatever they touch, they defile. Whoever they enlist, they enslave. There are people like this that are so given to lust, they simply cannot stop themselves. They are in bondage to it. And here, it's clearly about sex. Wherever these people go, they defile others, and they make it easier for other people to sin. And they entice others who are unsuspecting and unsteady. Entice is a word that comes out of, you know, fishing and hunting where bait is used to snare an animal or a fish. And there are some people who attend church to satisfy their lusts and capture Christians for their cause. And different bait can be used uh, that kind of set Christians up. False teachers can use a perversion of grace by camping on forgiveness to do whatever their flesh desires. That causes a believer to be unsteady. Another base, you see some leaders in Christian churches with an overemphasis on loyalty and respect for the leader so that if you had the nerve to question a leader, you're out of bounds. You're to, you're to feel guilty for that. To even investigate doctrine or activity of a leader, shouldn't do that. You ought to have unquestioned loyalty. Okay? That's not of God. You ought to be able to question your leaders. You can still respect that, but if you have a question, if you want clarity, do that. Okay? You have a brain just as much as I do. We're here traveling this Christian life together, right? Stability is an important factor in a successful Christian life. Just as a child is to learn to stand before they walk or run, so the Christian is to stand firm in the Lord. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, it says in Romans. That's the idea. Or in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we read an excellent passage in 1 Timothy that really gives us this idea of how we can stabilize things within the church. Now, this was written to a young pastor, Paul, writing to Timothy. And it says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the flesh and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 
having nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. You get the idea? He's wanting Timothy to just stand straight, declare the word of God, just let the, let the chips fall. Don't go by the culture. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love. Okay? We don't do this as, as an angry person, just red meat preaching, riling against other, railing against other churches or against the culture all the time, making other people or churches the enemy. That's not, that's not love. That's just being angry about it. Let no one despise you, he says, um, but in conduct and love and in, in faith and purity, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, to teaching, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So clearly the word of God is to be preeminent within the church and as we teach the word as we learn the word this is how we stand firm and we're we're discerning then about what's in the culture we can we can detect the lies but the word has to be primary within the body of christ it then uses the term the phrase, accursed children, meaning they are children of a curse. We see this kind of language elsewhere in the Old Testament in Isaiah, children of destruction, or in Hosea 10.9, children of wrongdoing, or in Ephesians 2.3, children of wrath. The idea is that these people are going to be subject to divine judgment. The ultimate consequence of their rabid rejection of Christ and the gospel and of Christ's authority. And one area that this kind of people use to lure others is greed. They are adept at knowing how to reel people into their web using money and practicing their greedy skills. They never have enough. Now listen, this is not just talking about people who have money because greed is an equal opportunity employer no matter what your economic status, right? You may think you're not making a lot of money, but you can be just as greedy as a person who has a lot of money. Now, granted, I think it's harder when you have a lot of money because the temptations are greater, but there's still temptation that goes around. But they're using people, using people for their own satisfaction, using money. Not just using money, but ingratiating themselves to others. The false teachers know how to profit off of others and use religion when they do it. Now, 
I could probably name you people that we all know when we see on television, and they do this. But I don't think I need to do that. But I will use an example of my granddaughter, six years old, who when um, she was told when she was helping her little brother um, that she would be a great mama, she replied that I don't want to be just a mama, I want to be a sugar mama. <laughs> six years old, I was like, where does that come from? You got to pray for that one, all right? <laughs> it starts young, all right? Got to root it out of them. <laughs> well, listen, how do, we, how do we wrap this up? How do we apply this? You know, um, I mean, as I was sitting here thinking, I, I, I can't recall in any recent history a false teacher within our church propagating their stuff. You know, we have people with agendas, but I wouldn't call them a, a false teacher. We have angry people, but I wouldn't call them a, a false teacher. Uh, we have people that even might add things to the gospel that I've heard, but I wouldn't call them false teachers necessarily, because um, a lot of Christians will do that. My point here, though, is that what can we do now? Um, how do we guard our hearts, particularly with greed and immorality? It's a fair question, because I think there's something we can do now to prepare ourselves. How can our hearts be sensitized so that when the temptation comes, we're adept at noticing it, okay? I think that we have to address, as individuals, any actions or thoughts that entertain either one of these things, right? When it comes to greed, here's a simple principle you might consider. We need to view ourselves as stewards instead of consumers. We are stewards instead of consumers. As a steward, I am responsible for all that God provides for me to use and leverage that for the kingdom of God. I pay my bills, I take care of our needs, and then I use whatever God gives me to influence the kingdom of God. That's, a, that's being a steward. A consumer is, what more can I get? What more can I do for my own pleasure? Now, that doesn't mean we can't have pleasure in things that we do, but when that is the chief and primary goal of why we have things and why we have money, okay, then that's greedy, okay? And so we really have to be sensitive and ask the Lord, Lord, show me this in my own heart. And sometimes it's not easy to notice. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, gluttony. When's the last time you've heard somebody confess gluttony? Nobody, <laughs> Right? Same thing with greed. Normally, people don't say, you know what? I, th I think I'm just greedy. <laughs> right? We know it goes on. We're so enculturated with the ideas within where we live that it's difficult to see. And so maybe just begin praying and ask God to show me maybe where I've got motives or pride or arrogance in these things that um, 
that encourage greed in my life. I, I, I don't want that. And see myself as a steward instead of a consumer. Because we all know that social media has it down to a science to know what to put in front of your eyes based on your likes and everything else that they're recording to put those advertisements in front of you. They are counting on you being a consumer. Yeah, you know, that's right. I really would like that shirt. So here, let's just click. And there we go. So all that stuff is in front of us. But if I'm a steward, there's a filter there. And when it comes to sex, we have to be honest and address how this can be entertained in our own hearts. Illicit affairs, don't entertain that in your head and heart. Okay? Pornography, we know it's a problem. We know it's prevalent. But as individuals, we have to take responsibility for that. And I am so encouraged when I have other guys come up to me and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I'm like, okay, that's a guy that's on the track to get help. That's a good thing. But it's when we don't and we think we can do this on our own. And we struggled for years. And we know we're enslaved, but we, know, we don't want to let the cat out of the bag. You can't talk to anybody about that, right? That's what we think. But, you know, how's that working for you so far, doing this by yourself? Right? You know it's not working. And so we have people in our church that can help you. Uh, we have groups that meet can help you. So the point is, be vigilant in addressing it. You can't just address this in a haphazard way. You have to be honest with yourself and be deliberate in getting help. Okay? I know it's prevalent. I know that there's not a person alive who hasn't been tempted, but we can have victory over the temptation. If you haven't experienced victory for a while, I want you to have hope. But you have to be willing to confess that before the Lord and get some help. So when we do that, okay, when we address the, this greed, when we address um, our own sexuality and these issues that we deal with, I really think what it does is it sensitizes us so that when false teachers come, we can smell it a mile away. We can see that is not right. That's an angle that just shouldn't be there. And, but if we're, if we're already in it, right, um, then we're going to be easy prey. So I want to encourage us in this, and I want to give us practical assistance as we want our church to be strong in this regard. Um, I don't want us to be passive, okay? Let's go before the Lord and pray.